Good morning. Uh, before I actually begin the formal introduction of our guest speaker, I'd just like to send uh, greetings to David Fold and his wife in Yerushalayim. Sorry you can't be here, and thank you for sponsoring. Uh, and I'd like to say greetings to all the pre-meds in the audience and wish them good luck on their journey this year. Um, I think a debt of gratitude is due to Aaron Kogut, Nahani Schoenbrum, and Yona Bardos, especially Yona, who got me here on the eve of my daughter's wedding uh, with a very, very easy and tantalizing tidbit, and that is the privilege of introducing today's guest speaker. Chief Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs has been Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the British Commonwealth, since September of 1991. He is the sixth incumbent since 1845. Prior to becoming Chief Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs has been principal of Jews College London, the world's oldest rabbinical cemetery, sem seminary, very much alive, very much alive, as well as Rabbi of the Golders Green and Marble Arts Synagogues in London. He received his smicha from Jews College as well as from London's Yeshiva the chief rabbi was educated at Cambridge, where he obtained first-class honors in philosophy, and he pursued his postgraduate studies at Oxford and King's College, London. Each year before Rosh Hashanah, the chief rabbi delivers a message to Great Britain on BBC television. This honor of a yearly address to the nation is accorded only to the Chief Rabbi, the Queen, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, in that order. The Chief Rabbi is a true scholar. He's the author of some 17 books and is a frequent contributor to the BBC and the Times of London. Born in 1948 in London, he is married to the lovely Elaine for 37 years, and together they have three children, Joshua, Dina, and Gila, and Baruch Hashem, two grandchildren. Three. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that the house praises the carpenter, a modification of the German proverb, the work praises the workers. So rather than go on and on and detail to you the myriad honors according to the chief rabbi, before he is an honor, and I think he's heard all of these honors many times before, I think it would be more instructive to quote some of his thoughts on the subject of Tikkun Olam, Orthodoxy's responsibility to perfect God's world. These remarks were made some 10 years ago in an address to the Orthodox Union and have always impressed me. The chief rabbi asked, why is it that if you read the Shulchan Aruch and the Gemara, you find very little about Tikkun Olam. The answer is that for 2,000 years, we were dispersed, scattered, exiled. We were powerless. Who in the world would think of learning from us? Then, in the 19th century, under the impact of the Emancipation and Enlightenment, the essence of Tikkun Olam became clear that by being particularist, by being Jewish and orthodox, by being who we are, we have universal consequences. We help change the world. The Maskilim wanted to give up the particularism and change the world through universalism. The orthodox, worried about universalism, began to suspect the phrases associated with Tikkun Olam, light unto the nations, the Jewish mission. These were considered code words for assimilation, and the whole concept of Tikkun Olam became suspect. What a tragedy that was. Today, for the first time in 2,000 years, we have a chance to put into practice. We have a state of Israel, which is our first chance to create a macro society run on Jewish principles. And in the diaspora, we are part of the mainstream of the democracies of the West, and we are able to speak and be heard. We are able to teach and be heeded. We are able to sanctify God's name in public. Ladies and gentlemen, 
This entire conference is a manifestation of the philosophy espoused by Rabbi Sachs. So it is my privileged honor to introduce to you the man who has articulated most eloquently the philosophy of Tikkun Olam, which is the sublime extension of our own Yeshiva University philosophy of Torah Umada. Rabbi Sir Jonathan Sachs, Chief Rabbi of the British Commonwealth. beloved students, Dr. Edward Burns, thank you so much for those very kind words. I think it was a slight exaggeration on your part to call Jews College the world's oldest rabbinic cemetery because, because as you said, there have only been six chief rabbis since 1845, so being a chief rabbi is a particular segula for long life. <laughs> and in fact, one of my great distinguished predecessors, the late chief rabbi J.H. Hertz, you may know of the Hertz Chumash and so on, was once asked by somebody, tell me how long do chief rabbis serve? And he gave the following reply. He said, chief rabbis never retire and only very rarely die. <laughs> so we will all settle, especially on a day like this and a theme like this for Uvachata Vachayim. Let me add my congratulations to your organizers, to Aaron and Hani and Yona, my thanks to the Fould family and their generosity, and to all of you for being here. And forgive me, I've been giving a lot of lectures, and my voice is a little hoarse, but can you hear me roughly? Yeah? Yeah? You're okay. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I, I did once give a lecture in which somebody at the back said, speak up, I can't hear you. And somebody at the front said, I can hear him. Would you like to change places with me? <laughs> However, before I begin the very specific topic that you've asked me to address, it does seem to me, given the particular atmosphere in the intellectual world of New York and indeed London for that matter, I might just say some very general remarks just as a kind of hakdama, a kind of present uh, preface, in general, on the relationship between religion and science. This was, or so we thought, the oldest of the old, and I believed that anything that could be said on the subject had been said on the subject. However, we are now currently living through a new chapter in this rather old story. We recall the first chapter, the great confrontation that occurred at the very beginning of the scientific revolution in the great confrontation between the Vatican and Galileo. The second chapter took place in Victorian England in the famous debate between Bishop Wilberforce and Thomas Huxley on Darwinism and the apparent contradiction between natural selection and what was called the argument from design. And currently we are living through the third chapter of this confrontation because I do follow the bestseller lists on Barnes & Noble, your, uh, your own bookshop. I, I always not like to know what Americans are reading because whatever you read, we're going to read a year from now. And I have noticed a whole series of books in the last few years on the bestseller lists of Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com advocating atheism. All of them became bestsellers. Sam Harris's The End of Faith, and then later on his letter to a Christian nation, 
Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, Richard Dawkins' wonderfully apoplectic book, The God Delusion. Uh, I do recommend it if you want to experience indigestion. Uh, Christopher Hitchens' The God, uh, God is Not Great. And in France, Michel Afroy, another bestseller called The Atheist Manifesto. And on the other side, as you know, is the argument from what tends to be called nowadays intelligent design and specifically associated with the name of Michael Behe and the argument that random genetic mutation cannot give rise incrementally to irreducibly complex systems. Now, in a Jewish view, this argument simply should never have happened in the first place for the simplest of all reasons, that we believe that the God of revelation is also the God of creation. And therefore, there cannot be, in principle, a contradiction between them. And when you apply revelation to creation, the result is redemption, tikkun olam. And therefore, in Judaism, science and religion, and that very, very much includes medical science, are two distinct domains within a single coherent view of the world. And indeed, everything in Judaism reflects that duality within the unity. We even have two names for HaKadosh Baruch Hu that reflect that distinction. The name Elohim refers to God as we encounter him in creation. The word Hashem is the name of God as we encounter him in revelation. And we have two corresponding epistemologies, two ways of coming to know things. One, the knowledge of creation is called Chochmah. Two, knowledge of revelation, which is called Torah. Chochmah is the truth we discover. Torah is the truth we inherit. Torah tzivalanu Moshe morasha kihilat Yaakov. Chochmah, which includes science, tells us about the world that is. Torah tells us about the world that ought to be. And our task as Jews in the world is to bring the world that is closer every day to the world that ought to be. Chochmah I define as everything that leads us to understand the universe as the work of God and the human person as the image of God. Chochmah therefore includes all the natural sciences and all the humanities. And what is really remarkable about Judaism, and it's been true of Judaism since long before the very concept of science existed, is the extraordinary autonomous dignity it grants to Chochmah. So, for instance, there's the bracha you make on seeing a great scientist. The sages coined it 2,000 years ago, Asher Natan Mechochmato, I made that bracha several times. I make it whenever I meet a Nobel Prize winner. And I had the great zechut some years ago when I received an honorary doctorate from Cambridge University of making it over the person with whom, uh, of my fellow honorand, who was James Watson, co-discoverer with Francis Crick of DNA. Secondly, as you know, the Gemara in Psachim, Davtsari Dalet, is absolutely extraordinary in its respect for science. You know, the Gemara is asking, where does the sun go at night? And it says, Chachmei Israel believe that during the day the sun goes beneath the Rakiah, the heavens, and at night it goes above the heavens, and Chachmei the Greek sages, the Greek astronomers, Ptolemy, hold that at, during the day the sun is above the earth 
and at night it goes beneath the earth. And then the Gemara says, It seems as if they got it right, we got it wrong, they got it right. Can you imagine this? If the Vatican had said that, there would have been no conflict with Galileo and no birth of secular humanism. And why is it that the sages were able to say that on a matter of science, the Greeks got it right and we got it wrong? Actually, as you know, the Greeks got it wrong as well, and that's exactly what Galileo showed, but never mind. It's nishkefelech. And the answer is because where the sun goes at night, the whole field of astronomy is chokhmah, it's not Torah. And when it comes to Chochmah, we apply the rule most famously stated by the Rambam in the Hakdamah to Shmone Prakim. Kabel ha'emet mimisha omra. Doesn't matter who says it. All that matters is, is it true or not? And of course, that's quite the opposite of Torah, where we don't say kabel ha'emet mimisha omra. We say the opposite. In Torah, it's important who said it. Why? Because Torah is the truth we inherit. And therefore, we only can inherit it from one who is a legitimate heir. But, and therefore, who said it is essential when it comes to science, who said it is totally irrelevant. In fact, we can go rather further. You know, there was a famous philosopher of science called Sir Karl Popper. Anyone heard of Sir Karl Popper? Oh, you missed him. I, I always thought he was one of the family that we recite on a seum of shas, you know, Raffram Bab Popper, Zulcha Bab Popper, Sir Karl Popper. He was the most famous philosopher of science in the 20th century. And Sir Karl Popper revolutionized human understanding of science when he pointed out that you can never conclusively confirm any natural law, but you can confirm conclusively refute a natural law. One counterexample refutes a law. And he delivered this in a famous theory called Conjectures and Refutations. And the fascinating thing is that Chazal beat him by 2,000 years. How come? Because of one of the most remarkable scientific statements in all of literature. And it comes from Rabbi Akiva's teacher, Shimshon Ho'amsoni, who used to be Doresh Kol Ach Patara Larabos. He had a particular exegetical principle. And then he came to a pasuk, Et Hashem Elokecha Tirah. You shall fill the Lord your God. And the word Et was supposed to indicate some, something else as well as God. And he couldn't think of anything else. And he had one counterexample to his, pro, his laws of interpretation. And he stood up and he retracted his whole life's teaching. And the student said, you're going to give up all your teaching because of one counterexample? And he said, yes. Kishem shekibalti scha al hadrisha, kach akabel scha al haprisha. Just as I received reward for the exposition, so I will receive reward for the retraction. The true spirit of Karl Popper, conjectures and refutations. Chazal had a scientific spirit. Now... In Judaism, we do not believe that you can prove the existence of God by means of science. And therefore, the whole argument of Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins totally irrelevant. Why can you not prove God from science? Because science describes the universe and God transcends the universe. Indeed, what is the Hebrew word for universe? Olam which comes from the same verb as ne'elam, which means hidden. The very existence of the universe is a place where God's presence is hidden. And that is why a scientist who's only looking at the things that are not hidden can never actually, by science, encounter God. Which is why we needed the twin belief that God is not just the God of creation, but also the God of revelation. That is where we encounter God. And therefore, what is the relationship between science and religion? It is not a relationship of proof. It is quite different. And it, that is what the Rambam says in Hilchas Yisodi HaTorah, Perik Beis, Halacha Beis, which to paraphrase is that when we understand the extraordinary dimensions of the universe, its vast intricacy, and our 
numerical and temporal insignificance, then we are filled with love for God who is so great, who cares about us who are so small. And at the same time, we were filled with awe because we are so small and the universe is so great. In other words, science doesn't teach us the existence of God. What it does teach is the love and fear of God. And once you put it that way, Dennett's book, Dawkins book become totally irrelevant and how true that is today there was a time from the 17th to the 20th centuries when science seemed to disconfirm religion there was Copernicus and Galileo who said the universe doesn't revolve around the earth the earth revolves around the sun then came Laplace who said, je n'ai besoin de cette hypothèse, I don't need God to explain the universe. Then came Spinoza to argue that all human behavior is the result of causation and therefore free will is an illusion. And in those days, from the 17th to the mid-20th century, science seemed to disconfirm religion. Today, precisely the opposite is the case. First came the discovery in 1965 of the background radiation of the initial uh, explosion that brought the universe into being, which finally proved, 800 years after the Rambam insisted on it, it finally proved that the universe did have a uh, an origin in time, and therefore the Greeks were wrong and the, the, the Torah was right that matter is not eternal. Secondly, I once gave a lecture in Cambridge on religion and science, and together with the professor of the history of science at Cambridge, at the end of the lecture, a gentleman came up to me and he said, Chief Rabbi, you won't know me. He said, but I wrote a book I thought you might be interested in. He, is, he was Sir Martin Rees, not Jewish, who was, who was and is the Astronomer Royal. And he wrote a book called Just Six Numbers. Have ever, any of you encountered that? This book shows that you know that the entire structure of the physical universe is determined by six numerical constants, the weak, strong and weak nuclear force, the force of gravitation and so on, just six numbers. And if any of those had varied to the, the degree of one in a billion, the universe would not have come into existence. And this man, a non-Jewish agnostic, says that the fine-tuning of the universe for the emergence of life is just too improbable to be a mere accident. And that from an agnostic and as a great scientist is remarkable. And then, of course, through the discovery of DNA, we now know, which we never even guessed before, that every single thing that lives from plant life to animal life to human life derives from one single origin, the eukaryotic cell. And hence, we have proved in our lifetime the fundamental truth of monotheism, which is that uni unity creates diversity. And it is astonishing that this is true. And if you want to read about it, read Matt Ridley's book called Genome. And finally, the human genome itself. Could any of us have imagined in any previous generation that every human body, yours and mine, contains a hundred trillion cells. Within every one of those cells is a nucleus. Within every nucleus is a double copy of the human genome. Within every human genome there are 3.1 billion letters of the genetic code, enough if transcribed, to fill a library of 5,000 books. And what all of this is doing in our lifetime is to show that science immeasurably enhances our understanding of the verse we said yesterday because it was Rosh Chodesh, Baruch Nafshi, Psalm 104. At no time in civilization have we been better able to understand the Pasuk, Ma Rabu Masacha Hashem Kulam Bechachma Asita. How great and many are your works, O oh Lord, you have created them all in wisdom. So today, science is making people religious, and one of your great scientists has just written a book to this effect, Francis 
Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, not Jewish, but who has just written a book, as you know, called The Language of God, which is about how his work on the Genome Project brought him to believe in God. And I think that's very remarkable. Now you want me to say a few words about ethical issues uh, at the beginning of life. Listen, I'm not quite sure I can add anything. You probably know more about this than I do, and you've read the books, and I'm reminded, since I'm also chief rabbi of Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong was in the Commonwealth until 1997. And then when it went back to China, they asked me to stay on as chief rabbi. So I don't know whether that makes me de facto chief rabbi of China. It's a, it's a thought. <laughs> and therefore, I love the story about the English philosopher who went over to the University of Beijing to give a lecture on philosophy. And of course, he couldn't speak Mandarin, so they arranged for him to have a Chinese translator so he gets up in front of a thousand Chinese philosophers, a huge academy like this, and he begins his lecture, and it's a very complicated lecture, and he stops after the first sentence, and he waits for the translator to translate, and the translator says, no, you carry on, I'll tell you when to stop. And he speaks for 15 minutes, and finally the translator raises his hand and says four words in Chinese. I don't speak Chinese, I won't even... It's, attempt to say what he said and again after half an hour and again after 45 minutes and after the hour of the lecture the interpreter got up and said three words to the audience and everyone stood up and filed out of the room and the philosopher went over to the interpreter and said this is amazing amazing I've given a whole complicated lecture on philosophy how could you condense it to those few words and he said, easy, after 15 minutes, I said, so far he hasn't said anything new. <laughs> after half an hour, I said, he still hasn't said anything new. After 45 minutes, I said, I don't think he's going to say anything new. And after an hour, I said, oh, I was right, he didn't. <laughs> so, Hebra, I honestly can't say anything new, but let's just remind ourselves of the old that the human genome really is the most religious of all scientific discoveries as President Clinton who was president at the time said we have learned to read the book of life what a most beautiful Jewish concept now where science is going to lead us I don't know I can tell you that over the next few years there will be some medical scientists working in the field of fertility who will be making some revolutionary discoveries that will show that the human genome, that the genetic genes in and of themselves are not the only factors in shaping the biology of human life. It's the latest research, it hasn't yet appeared, and it is being uh, pursued right now in the cutting edge uh, laboratories like that of Hammersmith in London, and in New Zealand. And, those, and, and the reason I know about this is because Britain's leading genetic expert, leading expert in the whole field of the treatment of fertility, and far and away Britain's best known medical expert because he has done series after series of documentaries on the BBC and they have appeared in America, I think, under the Discovery Channel. They have won many awards is a gentleman called Lord Winston, Lord Robert Winston. And just be aware that Lord Winston, Britain's leading geneticist, is an Orthodox Jew who is absolutely never ashamed to say so in public and on television. And his first award-winning series was called The Human Body, and the fifth episode of that was called The Brain, and at the end of that, of that program, he said, so far I have spoken as a scientist. He's standing there in his lab coat, and I am a scientist, and that's what I believe. But there is something about, human, about the human mind that I cannot explain as a scientist, namely consciousness. And for that, I can only use the word the soul, the neshama. 
and cut there and then to Robert Winston from being wearing his lab coat in the laboratory to Robert Winston wearing a yarmulke in shul leaning from a Sefer Torah. And he did that for the millions of viewers worldwide. And I thought that was a real Kiddush Hashem. But there is no doubt that Bernard Crick, uh, that Francis Crick and James Watson's discovery of DNA and the mapping of the human genome makes possible treatment of conditions that were hitherto incurable diseases, especially genetic conditions, and will bring new ways of treating infertility. They may, in addition, allow us to address organ failure, especially stem cells, without the need for transplant surgery, and that again would be an enormous bracha. And there may indeed be genetic switches, which if we learn how to turn them off, could seriously uh, reduce the aging process and increase human longevity. In In other words, we are almost in a position as of now, and certainly in a generation from now, to rewrite the genetic script. But of course, with power come responsibilities. With every advance in knowledge and technology come new ethical challenges. And therefore, we need to know and ask where we are going, because if we don't, we will simply never arise. And there is no doubt that our starting point as Jews has to be the idea that fertility is a blessing. Somebody just mentioned it now, that Avram and Sarah's infertility is a cry of pain from the Torah itself. In actual, actual fact, it is much more than that. Does anyone know Abraham's first words to God? We know God's first words to Abraham. We're going to read them next Shabbos, Lech Lecho, etc. But what were Abraham's first words to God? What can you give me if I go without a child? The first words of man to God in the after, 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 the, after, the, after the Tower of Babel were a cry of pain, a childlessness, Abraham, Sarah's, Rivka's, Rachel's, Hannah's, and so on. And I want to set this in a context. What is Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of creation. Hayom Haras Olam. And therefore what? If you never open a Masa in your life, would you expect the Kriya Satarab to be for Rosh Hashanah day one? Barashis Baral Kim, you'd expect it to be Genesis chapter one. What would you expect the Haftarah to be? Something from Isaiah about, about creation. Instead, what do we read on Rosh Hashanah day one? Bereshit chapter 21, the birth of Isaac. What do we read as the Haftarah of day one? Hannah's prayer for a child at the birth of Shmuel. Go figure, we are celebrating the anniversary of the universe, of creation. And what do we talk about? The birth of two children to people who are infertile. How do you add those two together? And the answer is very simple. If nefesh achas is ka'olam malay, if one life is like an entire universe, then if you want to understand the creation of the universe, understand the birth of one human child. That is the Jewish value. And that is why I wanted to write to Stephen Hawking. Have you read A Brief History of Time? More people have bought and started that book and failed to finish it than any other, I think. But you will know, of course, his famous closing words, that we ever di- if we ever discover the unified field theory that Einstein worked so hard to discover then and we had a complete explanation of everything in the universe then in his words we would know the mind of God and I wanted to write to him and say Stephen I in fact wrote this to him in an open letter in the times I said Stephen you want to know the mind of God you don't need to pursue theoretical physics all you have to know is what it is to be a parent Or as one American Jewish mother put it after her first child, she said, now that I'm a parent, I can relate to Hashem much better. 
She said, now I know what it is to create something you can't control. <laughs> so, there is an obvious question. Does Judaism have something to say about it? And the answer is surely yes. That treatment of infertility is of its very essence, as you call the conference, being Hashem's partner in the work of creation, creation of a new life, which is the nearest human equivalent of the creation of the universe. Now, we have had an enormous debate um, within, uh, within um, Christianity and others as to uh, where exactly <clears throat> oh. how look there's basically been an enormous debate as to how are we supposed to answer these ethical issues raised by science there was one theory there was one theory which um, is associated with the name of Jeremy Bentham Jeremy Bentham said judge any issue on its consequences does it create the greatest happiness for the greatest number, utilitarianism. Now, there is an enormous, enormous weakness of this theory, and we have to re regard this theory as simply and absolutely inadequate to ethical dilemmas. Why? Because according to utilitarianism, which is Peter Singer's approach and most of the secular ethicists' approach today, is that you judge and act by its consequences. However, if there is one thing we know and sociology has taught us, it is what is called the law of unintended consequences. Every single new development in human civilization has consequences that nobody could foresee at the time. Take a single invention, Gutenberg's invention of printing in 1450. Who could have foreseen that the invention of printing would lead to the Reformation, the redrawing of the political map in Europe, the birth of science, the secular nation state, the birth of the individual, the birth of a free economy, the industrial revolution, all of this from one simple invention, the invention of printing. Any new technology is that unpredictable and therefore utilitarianism fails absolutely and totally. We cannot talk about maximizing consequences. We can only talk about doing what is right or wrong. And that is where we have to rely on the accumulated wisdom of mankind. In other words, our great religious heritages. However, there is another concept just because of the weakness of utilitarianism that has entered discourse in the West and it dominates the field of medical ethics. And that is, forget about consequences, look at personal choice. Look in terms of the language of rights. Look in terms of what medical ethics calls reproductive autonomy. Every person's right to make their own decisions. Now that's an important idea, it's a valuable idea, but it is utterly inadequate to the ethical issues at the start of life. Why? Because each of us certainly has rights, but with each right comes a responsibility. And in all of human life, there is no responsibility greater than for those we bring into being. And that is why parenthood is not only a matter of rights, but also of responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is the right of every child to have the space to be themselves. And that must inhibit any such approach as reproductive cloning or, uh, you know, dis design uh, uh, embryos and so on and so forth. As the great professor of philosophy at Harvard University, Hilary Putnam, put it, Every child has a right to be a surprise to its parents. Chazal tell us of the first ever act of cloning. You remember what the first act of cloning was? It's at it's the beginning of Parshish Toledos. Ve'ele Toledos, Yitzchak ben Avraham, 
Avraham holidet Yitzchak. And Rashi and Chazal want to know why, why the apparent repetition and explains because the Leitzone Hadar, the scoffers of the generation, saw that Sarah all this time was infertile and she gets taken into the harem of, uh, of Avimelech and uh, all of a sudden she's pregnant. So they were saying, May Avimelech Nisabra Sarah, uh, that she became pregnant from Avimelech and not from Avram. So Hashem brought about a miracle and made Isaac a clone of Abraham. It was the world's first human clone. What was the result? Do you know the result? It says in the beginning of Bereshit chapter 24 in Chayesara, Vavraham Zaken Babayamim. And Chazal say Abraham was the first person to become old. Nobody is mentioned as old before. And Chazal explained that Avram who was initially thrilled to have a child who was a clone of himself, suddenly realized that nobody could tell the difference between Isaac and Abraham. And the whole difference between the generations was eroded. So he prayed, Hashem, make me different from Isaac. Make me look old. So the first experiment in cloning had to be undone because it failed to demarcate sufficiently between parent and child. And it's very, very interesting. Secondly, I'm going to say something, Bikitsa Nimrods, because I've spoken for quite long. Bikitsa Nimrods. I have a theory, and it'll take another hour to explain, so I'll just give it to you in a heading, that Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, what was that all about? And I have a radical theory that the story of Akedat Yitzchak is the Torah's protest against a principle that was universal in the ancient world. It was called in Roman law, and I'm talking this lasted in Roman law to the 3rd and 4th centuries of the Common Era, it was called Patria Potestas, which means that a parent has total rights over a child, even the right of life and death. A parent owns a child. That's how it was in, Jewish, in, in non-Jewish law. And that's why child sacrifice was wild, widespread in the ancient world. Because a child was a piece of property. So just as you could offer up an animal, so you could offer up your child. And that was a universal principle in the ancient world. And Akedat Yitzchak had nothing to do with God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and everything to do with Abraham renouncing ownership in Isaac. Are you willing, said God to Abraham, to give Isaac to me? The second Abraham showed he was willing to do that, God said, stop, that's all I want. Your children are not your possessions. There is no patria potestas in Judaism. Now, let me ask you a question. Is any child in the Bible called the possession of one or other parent? The answer is yes. And it was the first ever human child. Look in Bereshit chapter 4 and you will see that Eve became pregnant and had a child and she said, Kaniti ish. I have acquired a person from God. I have acquired. And therefore she called his name Cain. My possession, a Kinyan. Are you with me? If parents believe they own their children, the result is Cain. The result ain't good. So the Torah is a protest against the idea that parents can own their children. And that must be a protest against eugenic cloning, designer genes, and all the rest of it. We have to allow a child the space to be itself, and not what we decide, but what HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides. And that is a fundamentally important principle. Therapeutic cloning, yes. Eugenic cloning, no. And that is, I believe, extremely important. And of course, that means we must place a limit on genetic technology. 
If we are clever enough to create genetic technology, then we are clever enough to control genetic technology. The test of a civilization is measured not by what it can do, but also what it chooses for ethical reasons not to do. For six days, God created the universe. On the seventh day, he rested to show that there are limits to creation. And if we forget those limits, we will end up in disaster. Friends, there is indeed a further issue here, and that is what I would call um, the principle which Rav Soloveitchik spoke, as Zitzel spoke about, in The Lonely Man of Faith. In Bracious chapter 1, we speak about the powers of the human being. Etc., etc. In Bracious chapter 2, we hear covenantal man Adam 2 being told that he is placed in the garden to serve it and to conserve it. Shmira is in Judaism, to be a Shoma in Judaism is a very specific ethical category, halachic category. If you're the Shoma of something, you don't own it, and it is your task to look after it, and if possible, uh, improve it a little, but, but it's not yours. You remember that famous Yiddish translation of Shakespeare, which said, Shakespeare verteicht und verbessert. You know, it's your, it's your job to translate, maybe improve, but it doesn't belong to you, and that is the Shmirah condition. And that means we have an obligation not only to the uh, natural environment, but also the human environment, our genetic heritage, to make sure it is handed on to future generations undamaged and undiminished. And that will raise major ethical issues about what is called germline genetic interventions, as opposed to somatic cell interventions. Somatic cell interventions have an effect only on the person to whom they are done, whereas germline interventions have an effect on all future generations of the person to whom that is done. And that will raise serious ethical questions about any genetic procedure that has potentially lasting consequences for the diversity of the human gene pool. It is enough to say that that consideration alone militates against any large-scale genetic cloning, which, apart from many other ethical objections, will have the effect of reducing human genetic diversity. Don't forget, there is a fundamental question, why did God create zakha unikeva, sexual reproduction? It is an extremely complicated, expensive, and messy way, as any of us who've tried to find shiduchim for our children and grandchildren know. Why didn't I just make it easier? Parthenogenesis. Why can't we reproduce ourselves? Why do we need the azekonegdo, that complex dialectic of male and female? Why sexual reproduction? And the answer is, as you know from all the textbooks on this written in recent years, the co- only the zakha unikeva constantly renew the genetic creativity and diversity of humanity, which is why if we cease doing that and use this technology of cloning, which is asexual reproduction, we will, if it is done on any large scale, do ir- irretrievable damage to the human gene pool. We may, al pihalacha, my dayanim and my din, are willing to contemplate, we haven't done it yet, the possible use of reproductive cloning if that is the only way an infertile couple can have a child. We don't say no to it absolutely and categorically. We haven't put this to the test yet, but we open that possibility. But as a as a large-scale thing for parents who can have children naturally, we say no to it. And then uh, I think finally, um, well, I, I, I actually think that's probably enough to go on with because I've been talking for far too long. And therefore, let me say very simply this.
Um, we have to remember the message that Torah gives us at the very beginning in its very opening words. Bereshit bara Elohim. The Torah begins with a base. Everyone asks, why does the Torah begin with a base and not with an aleph? And you know the answer of Chazal, that HaKadosh Baruch who saved the aleph for the first word of the Aseres Adibro Zanachi Hashem Elokecha. And the message of that to the medical science of today is absolutely clear. Creation takes second place to revelation. What we engage in in the medical world, especially in this reproductive technology, is measured not by what we can do, but what we may do. The base of Bereshis, of creation, is secondary and always to be regulated by the Aleph of Hashem Zanochi, the God of Revelation. And therefore, let me sum up very simply, even though I've only given you what the art scroll call an overview. Nonetheless, let me sum it up in these words. Number one, God has given us these extraordinarily great powers. How do we use them? We must use them with what I call the three R's. Reverence, responsibility, and restraint. To allow an infertile couple to have a child is a mitzvah of all mitzvahs. You remember what Rachel says, To go without a child is almost, for the childless, to be deprived of life itself. So reproductive technology is a massive blessing, but it is hedged around with ethical constraints. And therefore, may we use our God-given powers to honor our God-given image, which is the human person. And may we use those powers to perfect the world under the sovereignty of God. Amen.